0: Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, There's a handout on the table. I mean, I made plenty. I know there was going to be a few people gone today, so... Uh, Some back here, some around, some over there. Uh, The backside of the handout is just the entire chapter of Mark 13, which we're going to take a look at. Now, it's 37 verses, which, you know, normally takes a long time to closely study, so we are going to uh, the opposite of closely study. Uh, you know, and really because, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to put you to sleep. So, all right, so Mark 13, now, uh, I think we got the projector thing under control now, because last week, Pastor Bukes was able to use it. And uh, did he show Max McLean or, or the Alex McGinnis? Okay, good. I just want to make sure that we're offering you a, another interpretation. So this is Max McLean. Similar idea, one-man one show. This was performed, well, I guess it's still being performed randomly, but it, there was a, um, in the, I think it was 2008 or six. Uh, they had a run here in Chicago, and I think this is where this is from, this this uh, video, of uh, Max McLean, quote unquote, performing the gospel of mark. So uh, it's most similar to our, the English standard version, although of course you know he gets some of the, you know, the wording a little different. So don't you know, don't don't overreact if you say he got the things a little wrong. Um, You get the gist. So, uh, just before I play it, though, a couple things, though, to think about is... Well, no, let's just watch it. Okay. Okay. Okay, now, first of all, in his interpretation of mark 13 the well it's been it's been a few weeks since we see max mclean maybe longer than a few weeks um, but one of the things that has changed in the stage is well there's been there's something that's been changed in the way the stage is what's uh, and that actually is important for us to kind of Put in perspective Mark 13. um, It's it's very dark. Okay? Um, That actually is is important because um, Mark 13, at the end of Mark chapter 12, you literally could go from Mark the end of Mark chapter 12 to Mark 14, verse 1. So if you actually were open your Bibles, it actually like is a nice clean transition. But, of course, in between the end of Mark 12 and 14 is Mark 13. And you have this, um, this teaching by Jesus. Now, again, thinking back over the whole course of this production from Max McLean, there's another thing that's unusual about this, is that um, it's kind of boring. <laughs> there's not much action going on. This is the longest section in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is just talking. If we, we remember way back when, back in the springtime, <laughs> when we first started, um, one of the helpful, helpful, helpful things to understand the Gospel of Mark is the use of the word immediately. So there is uh, dozens of scene transitions in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is moving from one location to another and he's moving very quickly. Now, in Mark 13, all of a sudden, everything stops. And it's just Jesus sitting down, talking. So um, that's a very kind of a different situation than the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And so how they they kind of interpreted that was using the lighting. Lights kind of come down low. And then in Mark 14, things will, will come up a little bit, but not too much, because there's darkness on the horizon. You know, the crucifixion. Okay. Um, what, anything else struck out as far as his interpretation of the gospel or the Mark 13 by chance? Anybody think of anything? Cause I thought a lot of things, but we'll just kind of dive into the text. Yeah, Leah. Um,
1: so uh, this.
0: Right. This
1: feels much more direct than Yes. It's very instructional and this is what you should expect. This is what you should be doing and alert and develop a lot more
0: direct. Yeah, right. The disciples ask a question and Jesus answers it. Um now what's interesting about what Leah just said is Jesus asks answers very directly. But at the same time, especially at the end of the reading, what does he say? Because what are the disciples, what's the the primary question from the disciples? When will this happen? Jesus gives all this explanation. And then towards the end of the chapter, what does Jesus say? When it will happen? Nobody knows. So it's, very, it, it, it's you're like, okay, I got you, Jesus. I'm getting you. Okay, I'll look for this. Okay. Now now you got you get you lost me now Jesus. Um but the important thing though is is that Je- so Jesus though is answering directly. I mean this is really Leah's absolutely right. He's he's answering court the their question. Because when they ask when will all these things all these things is a is kind of a, it's a Greek phrase. And Jesus says twice now in his response, I'm telling you all these things or uh, you know, it He's, he's giving the answer. I mean, he's responding. Krista. I saw the
1: destruction of September.
0: Yeah, right. Now, so this is, this is uh, Jesus' response. Uh, uh, the disciples' question is in Jesus' statement about um, these big stones. So uh, so the, the setting's important. So at the, you know, so chapter 12, Jesus has all these arguments with the religious leaders and then at the end of the gospel, or Mark chapter 12, no one's going to talk to him anymore. He's kind of rendered everybody silent. So now they're leaving the temple, and of course, you know, Jesus has just spent the last, you know, chapter, and arguably chapter 11 also, basically saying the temple is on its way out. It has no more grandeur like it used to. And then what do the disciples say? look at all these huge, this is beautiful. You know, it's almost like, were you not listening? Things are changing now. So the disciples say, look at these mighty stones. Now, actually, that's actually a true statement. Um, The stones that made up these walls, uh, the only surviving one is the quote-unquote whaling wall that's in Jerusalem. Stones are huge. Um, There's been a little archaeological, you know, excavation and, I mean, some of these stones are, you know, dozens and dozens of tons, I mean, just huge stones. So they're actually, I mean, it is quite impressive. That, um, And there's a little bit of argument exactly how tall they were, but um, it's, it's they're tall. I mean, taller than our building. It ranges from like 30 to like 100 feet, depending on kind of the calculations. I mean, really impressive. Huge stones, very tall, and they're walking out. So, I mean, you think about it, anybody who's never seen the Willis Tower or Empire State Building, I mean, this building is magnificent. But, of course, Jesus has not been talking about the building for the last two chapters, primarily about the building. And we see that at the end of the gospel, I mean, at the end of chapter 12, because the man responds, you have answered rightly, Right? Um, what's more important than everything that happens in the temple? Yeah, I, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. It's a fulfillment of um, the Old Testament. So Jesus has just undermined everything that happens in the temple. And I, I shouldn't say undermined it. He is, he's point. He, it's now, it's the end of the temple time, it's coming to its end and somebody or something is taking over. Now, of course, this scenario when Jesus is leaving the temple after basically rendering it powerless is another example from Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 is is an important section in the Old Testament because the glory of God leaves the temple, the shekinah. And after that, the temple no longer is what it was. And there's actually there's actually debate amongst even Judaism at this time whether at Jesus' time the temple actually is still the place where the glory of God dwells. That's why you have certain people like the Zealots who have actually moved out to the desert to create a pure community so that They're waiting for the glory of God to come back down into the temple. So anyways, so the whole point, though, is now Jesus is leaving the temple. The glory of God dwells. The the power and the glory of, of God now reside in the person of Jesus, and he's leaving the temple. And now what does he do? He sits on Mount of Olives, and he sits across from the temple, and he starts pronouncing judgment on it. So he's acting like God. Now, of course, when God makes his judgment, that should, that, that, that should conjure up the end of things. Of course, we read about the last judgment, right? When, um, when everyone will stand before God. Um, but so this, this is actually now a judgment. The temple is standing before God, and, and Jesus is rendering its judgment his judgment, God's judgment. So all this is happening, but first things first, we have to think about this. Um, what actually destroys the temple? And that, that's a primary question. Most uh, commentators will say that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., when the general Titus comes into, the Roman uh, general, which I think is a um, a movie. Anthony Hopkins plays Titus, I think, and he comes into Jerusalem and destroys (laughs) destroys Jerusalem. There's also a uh, very famous uh, thing in Rome. I don't know what you call those thingers. Pillar? Arch? Yeah, Arch of Titus. Yeah, thank you. It's actually the arch. I've, I've actually seen it. Apparently it's made a big impact on me. Um, but it tells the story of, of this conquest. Okay. Anyways, uh, most people will see that as the kind of the fulfillment of what Jesus says. And that, that's partly true because the building's destroyed. But it, has Jesus been primarily talking about the building up to this point in chapter 11 and 12? No, he's talking about what's happening in the temple. He's talking about right worship. Not talking about the building. That is of secondary importance, I would argue. So what renders the old worship of the temple meaningless? Want to take a gander? Anybody want to take a guess? Hey, good job, Kathy. Yeah, Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what... This is what fulfills the Old Testament and ceases it to be of any um, ultimate value unto itself. The temple now has been overshadowed by Jesus Christ, death and the resurrection. Now the temple, if it has any value, points only to that. So when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, he's mainly making reference to his crucifixion and resurrection. Now... Back to Leah's point. He, he's been teaching the disciples this entire time, this point. That his ministry, his glory, his power, it will be seen when he is lifted up. Which, of course, is ironic. Paradox. The Disciples still haven't quite gotten it yet. But hopefully, and this is, why, this is when Jesus says, let the reader understand. I'm sorry um when Mark says that, i maybe Jesus said that i, I doubt it though I think I think that's mark in, Mark's uh, writing. Let the reader understand this parenthetical statement. He's reminding us, oh wait we we actually know the whole story, so that helps us understand things when um even the disciples have a problem understanding it. okay, now, the reason why I say that though is because um without without. First things first, it becomes a history lesson and a a prophecy about something that happens in history. And what's dangerous about that is we abstract that from the the, the entire story of the Gospel of Mark. We say, oh, did Jesus know what he was talking about? Because um, before Titus came, there was uh, the Jewish war. In fact, uh, that's kind of what brought Titus to, to the Roman... General Titus to, to Jerusalem. The Jewish war was uh, in the 60s, 60 AD. And what happened there was some zealots took over the temple and replaced the high priest with one of their own. So some people say, that's what Jesus is talking about. Others say, well, he's talking about Titus. Okay, now, what are we not talking about when we talk about those things? The death and resurrection of Jesus, which is primarily what the Gospel of Mark is about. Those, again, I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm saying that's secondary importance. That we actually understand those historical events in light of Jesus, what Jesus does on the death of the cross. And that's very important for us because without doing if we don't do that, then our historical events in our life now become very, just about one thing happening. It's Henry Ford's dictum about history. History is just one darn thing happening after another. I didn't say darn, but... But that's not what history is, according to the Bible. History is the unfolding of God's work, plan, will. And so history is always steeped in purpose and meaning. Okay, great. So, when will the temple be overcome? We have to answer that question. But we have to first understand the meaning of the temple... What's the temple about? It's about God's presence with His people. It's about His communion with His people. It's about hope, forgiveness, forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness of sins, cleansing, making. You know, I mean, it, there's a lot of meaning to the temple. And of course, that's now being judged, and it, it's not. They, they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't pass the test. Temp- the temple has now been judged. Unworthy primarily because of not not the temple itself but israel's defilement of it okay um, so uh, all right. so what okay so so part part of the reading now too is uh, we have to think about this things are becoming chaotic mark thirteen there's a stra- there's a um, thread of things unraveling. And that's important for us because, um, well, when life unravels, what do we do about it? What do we turn to? So there is this unraveling that's happening, but at the same time, there's also hope within the gospel, Mark, because Jesus is telling you these things before they happen, meaning that When life unravels, we don't say, you know, what's going on here? God, you know, do you you know what you're doing? Why is this, you know, why this is happening? All those things are are conveyed in the Psalms. But we also know that um, God hears the cries of his people. So this is important for us because... um, things come unraveled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, um, that, that's actually a point of comfort for, for people who are, seem to be in the same spot. Um, so the objective perspective, Jesus is saying, God's in control, right? Uh, so um, I, g- I give list some verses there, but um, Jesus says things before they happen. Jesus says that um, things like this have not happened since the beginning of creation, which God created. So there is this objective perspective that whatever chaotic thing is happening, what it seems like de creation is happening or deconstruction is happening, God is still. Maneuvering this, he's he's making these things happen, but the subjective perspective is all things, are, all hell's breaking loose. Surely. but
1: he's also very forward in, in yeah. speaking, saying that the gospel should be taught to all nations. It has to be. This is, this
0: is what I'm telling you. It has to be. Yeah, now actually, what's interesting about that is is that um, that phrase is put in the middle of you can be brought before councils. And you're going to have trials. The gospel must be preached. And what's, what's kind of funny about that is because um, most people will say, because the gospel will be preached, th- these things will happen. But since Mark puts it in the middle, it's actually the trials and tribulations that give, give you the opportunity to witness to the gospel. Yeah. So those are the means in which the good news will be preached. Of course, we don't nobody likes to hear that. It's through, which of course is a great theology of martyrdom. And again, we see this primarily in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, where the one confession of Jesus as the Son of God, which is a, a, a Son of God being a title of power and glory. It's the only time it happens in the Gospel of Mark, unless, it's a, unless you're a demon or the Heavenly Father. The only time a human, is witness to this, is, is when Jesus dies. So it's when Jesus is dead that the gospel is proclaimed, and someone sees it and says, yes, that's what it is. That's the good news. So in Mark 13, Jesus is really laying down this um, vision of the future that is seeped In his own reality. What happens to Jesus happens to you. So everything that Jesus describes is primarily happening to him. He's brought before councils. He's brought before trials. Who is he betrayed by? Judas. But of course, Jesus is not just some random person, a brother. He's betrayed by a brother. his family's, you know, turning against himself. I mean, it's, it's uh, one thing after another. All these things that happen are happening to him. And that's important for, for the disciples then because the end of the world, as we know it, happens in Jesus' death and resurrection. But at the same time, it's the beginning of a new, new creation. So that is the, the hope that the disciples have in the midst of all this kind of twilight zone talk. I call it, I call it the twilight. I think Mark 13 is like twilight zone. You kind of take a step out of the normal, you know, kind of nor- normal storyline. You take a step back, and you have this whole scenario, because in Mark 14, it's, it, it turns into Wednesday. So Mark 13 is either happening on Tuesday, outside Holy Week, or or um, on the cusp of Tuesday and Wednesday, which would be the third day of Holy Week. And that's actually important for us because the Gospel of Mark, actually from Mark chapter 11 to Mark 16 is, is one week. And today it's it's the day before the moon and the stars and the sun are created. That's on the fourth day. So when Jesus says, the sun will be dark and the stars will fall, he's actually talking about things that happened before creation. I mean, things haven't ha- this hasn't happened since the beginning of creation. So what Jesus is describing is a whole new creation. And Easter Sunday is the first day of the new creation. And Holy Week is the end of the old creation. And this happens to be the third day. Because Jesus dies on the sixth day. I do this with the kids for baptism. Jesus dies on the sixth day. And there's six sides to the hexagon underneath the baptismal font. That's the sign of, like, humanity. And then there are eight bursts coming out of the circle, I mean, or, or like in the circle, coming away from the from the baptismal font. And that happens to be Easter Sunday. So what looks like is um, the uh, deconstruction of creation happening in Holy Week is the labor pains for the New creation, and when Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, he comes out of the new the womb. He's the firstborn of creation. So it's it's uh, now again. Leah might say, "Wait a second! I thought I thought the answer was pretty direct, Pastor Nelson. This doesn't. I mean, how did I know all that stuff? <laughs> um, well, uh, it's because uh, there's so much of the Old Testament in Mark chapter 13." <laughs> Daniel, the, uh, the book of Daniel is, is, uh, quite, is used quite a bit in Mark 13. Lots of uh, the book of Isaiah is used. Um, the idea of false prophets using signs and wonders or miracles, I can't remember how it's translated in the ESV, um, is an is, is a echo of Moses. Because Moses used signs and wonders, right? He you know, stuck his hand in the pocket stuck it back out, put it back in. His uh, staff ate the serpents of the, of course, then the plagues. And, you know. So you have all the Old Testament background coming to judgment. It's coming to like a fruition. Now, so I'll, I'll let you guys off the hook for not seeing all that because we, uh, we don't spend hours and hours reading the Old Testament anymore because we have television. You know, if we live back then, I mean, how lost we got. Listen <laughs> to the Bible with that. Krista. I
1: just was only wondering because the temple was never built again.
0: That's right. That's right. And that's why, that's why, that's why so um but of course the historical event of let's say Titus in seventy AD is actually just uh, a um it would be a, 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 well, how should I say this? What Jesus does in the Gospel, or in Mark 13, or Mark, um, in the Gospel by his death and resurrection, um, it's from that point on that the temple has now been completely re- replaced. Because what happens in the early church, in Acts, where do they still go? The they still go to the temple. Mm-hmm. Not to make sacrifices, but to what? yeah what do they do? They proclaim the fulfillment of the temple, so even though the building exists for God's people, it's no longer the same place. You don't do the same things there so now it it in a sense it just becomes a place of brick and mortar now in the Old Testament, they wouldn't say that it's not not just a place of brick and mortar it's a place of god's presence it's it's um what we would say of the Lord's body and blood. Uh, body body and blood. It's not just a piece of bread and wine. It's the holy presence of God and it needs to be treated, you know, appropriately. Now in Acts, the, the the building now, of course, it is now of course, you know, you're you're thinking about this, these people have so they're still gonna treat it with reverence and respect because it's the temple. <laughs> so you know, so it's not like they're gonna go, I don't know, vandalize it, and uh, Banksy's going to, you know, do some sort of, like, artwork on it. Um, but, but at the same time, it's rendered powerless in their life. So when Titus the, ha- comes and destroys the temple, while it's a very sad, terrible event, even in the life of the church, it's, it, it doesn't actually fundamentally change their life, their worship life. Because now, where's the presence of God? It's, it's moved into the body and blood of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's important for us. So when we, because in Mark 13, we'll read these lessons at the end of the church year, which is coming up in a few weeks. So Mark 13 will be read the last Sunday of the church year and the second to the last. So I think it's like 17th and 14th. 18th and 25th, I guess, yeah. All right. And So that's important for us because it's funny because it's at the end of the church year, but of course what happens then the following week? Advent 1, right? We kind of start over. So it's a sign of things ending, but at the same time it's a sign of things beginning. And that's what we get in uh, the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 16. So... um, this is important for us. So the fabric of society is falling apart, families turning against itself, and nature is deteriorating. Life is coming unhinged, in, in Holy Week. Um, but what does Jesus say of these events? These are the beginning of labor pains. Which is probably, probably a, like a truthful statement. For I mean, right. I think labor, I mean, Holly's not here today, but I've heard it said of women, <laughs> you know, that it, uh, labor's really hard. <laughs> now, of course, though, this is actually a more serious level because, um, you know, what happens in labor in early, in ancient Near East, though? What, what happens to women in labor? Well, the way up to the 19th century, it's really kind of more a 20th century phenomenon. Women actually live through labor now. Right? Back in the old days, it was very common for women to die. So, um, so when Jesus says these are the beginning of labor pains, it's a very scary situation. And it might seem like you're going to die. But at the end of it, there's new life. Yeah, Leah. I was thinking
1: that it goes direct because we don't have
0: the story. Well, yeah, right.
1: And so I was just thinking like, Mark would have had to go through this gospel as the events were happening, Oh. it would be interesting to see what he would have pulled out. Yeah, right. Even like labor paints, you know, someone's got starts. You're like, oh, yeah, that's when it started. And then you go to the hospital and you no, it actually didn't. But, like, when you find out, oh, no, it actually ended, and
0: actually... Ended. That's, a, that's a great point, Leah. You go
1: look back, and you're like, yeah,
0: that was the beginning. That was. That's a, that's, a great, that's a great synopsis. But
1: it is kind of reassuring to think about, you know, think about, okay, Mark seems like he kind of has a handle on things. Right. And also, we're looking at this and saying, gosh, just across, possible just aren't getting it. Right. Um, but it's because they don't know the end. Once they see the end, they're going to they back and say, ah. and, and I think that's reassuring now, like, that's at, right. In our lives. Like, there's so many things that are happening, and it's like, I want to know the answer, I want to know the answer, I to know the answer.
0: So, there's like, a there's a That's right. That's exactly right. So, um first things about the, la- the understanding of the labor pains, that's really good. Because you think, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, Daphne's, I think, was our shortest labor. I can't remember how long it was. But it had to have been less than 24 hours. Because I think Penelope, I mean, Audrey was the longest like at 38 or something like that. <laughs> that was after inducing. Um, but you know that that when it started happening, you're like, "Hey, it's it's, it's going to happen." You, you're like, "Hey, it's," and then all of a sudden, you're like, "When will this happen?" Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's, no, I, we've had that too. Yeah, there's there's a variety of interesting things about labor. See, Jesus is a lot smarter than me. That's good. So when he uses that, there's a variety of interesting levels about that. Which goes then too about when Jesus says. You, I don't, and don't know the hour. You know, right? Like, these things are happening, and it will happen, but at the same time, you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. That's good. Uh, Aaron. Right. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I just, I should have stopped talking, sorry. Well, I
1: was thinking about that. So it's like, however bad labor is, you know at the end. Like, there's, no God, like, there's a baby at the end.
0: Numerous times that it's like the same pain as labor. And like, That can't be true. i But how, do, how would you know? I've had
1: babies
0: and Oh, okay. So, so but I, would I would so <laughs> have been I like, so baby because at the end of it, you, to, you get a baby. It's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, you, you, you get a little calcium deposit. <laughs> Pointless. It's intolerable. Yeah.
1: And you think about the world and you see know, some mm-hmm. people who don't have a hope of Christ who right. suffer, you know. And I'm, I know this is talking about specific things like
0: that are... No, but it's very helpful for us. That goes to Leah's second point, but keep talking. So. Just going through the,
1: the hopelessness. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look at people I know who don't, who don't have the hope of... Yeah, right. A, ...of eternal life that... Like, I have no idea how you go through
0: yeah, right. Right. So, so this is really important for us is that, um, when we do go through hardships, tribulations, sufferings, Jesus is transforming them. He's describing what they are going to look like. And, and, and it's by whose power that this will happen. When he says, when you become. Before councils and tribu- you know tribunes what what are you supposed to do? yeah, Holy Spirit, so the tribulations and the sufferings become this means in which the Holy Spirit will speak the gospel now of course, maybe through words, but definitely through actions, and so Jesus is actually transforming the disciples' future suffering to be an example of the power of God. So we, we actually see this in, in this, uh, um, when Jesus says in, I think it starts at verse 24, yeah. 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Um, so this is a, this is a, another, on another level. So Jesus does talk about what, what people call the uh, parousia, the second coming. But this is also talking about the crucifixion because Throughout the Gospel of Mark, power and glory are paradoxical. Now, you see this especially in the Gospel of John, because Jesus actually says that. But in Mark, he doesn't say it, he just shows it. The power and the glory is shown in the crucifixion in a paradox way, and we see this when the centurion confesses, truly, this man was the Son of God. So the miracles don't don't speak to Jesus' power and authority, even though people will say it. This man speaks with authority not like the scribes. These are foreshadowings of of Christ, but again, they don't understand it because they're the ones who then say crucify him, right? So while they get it a little bit, they don't quite get it fully. They'll get it fully in the resurrection. So when Jesus says you'll see the Son of Man coming in power and glory in the clouds, for us here on earth, going through the tribulations in the trials, we look towards the cross for the power and the glory. Because if you were to stand in front of the cross and you look up at Jesus, what do you see behind him? And we know this for, for truth. You see a bunch of clouds behind him. Because that's the description of the sky when Jesus is being crucified, right? Clouds come. In Matthew, especially, it becomes dark. And when he dies, what happens? Matthew is kind of a funny, funny situation because it's not mentioned in Luke or John or Mark. But who comes out of the graves? The dead. So in Mark, you see angels going out to gather the elect, and Matthew, actually see it happening. People come from the grave alive. Three. So what happens then is when we are in trials and tribulations what Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark is says, look to my cross because it's in my cross that you are joined to me and your sufferings now become my sufferings and my sufferings don't end in death but end in life. What's, what's dangerous about some people, some advice from Christians is that they'll say, um, you know, look towards heaven or pass the cross as the hope. And what's dangerous about that is then it doesn't actually do anything with your sufferings. It kind of disregards them. And the Gospel of Mark is a great, core, core, uh, it, it's a correction in how we understand our sufferings. Because Mark will say, don't look to heaven, but look to Jesus on the cross. Because then that is the fulfillment of my power, my glory, my love, my um, the lengths to which I will go for you. And then once we're joined to the, his death, his death is a peculiar death because it, it comes back alive. I mean, it's, it's an unusual thing. So that's, then that goes back to Leah's statement is that um, how we know and have hope in the midst of trials and tribulations is we see it happened in Jesus. And if it happens to Jesus, then it happens for us. Who've been joined to him in holy baptism. Uh Julie and then Krista. Julie. So can you mention like this second chapter, about, you know, and the second coming, on the trunks of love? And then the angels gathered for that before we to Yep.
1: Um, some of the things here are referring to the resurrection and the time.
0: Yeah, right. It yep. It like, how do you see like or Yeah, it's, it's both. Yeah, thank, good question. Um, because every prophecy, or I, I'm pretty sure, I haven't actually read, every, I mean, I haven't really studied every single prophecy in the Old Testament, but like the mo, pro, most popular ones, um, the ones that most people would know, uh, they have like an immediate answer, and then they have this, what we say, future answer. So, yes, the, the answer to your question is yes. Jesus is talking about the immediate and also what happens at, because Jesus will come back as... so the other, Okay, so in the Gospel of Mark, we don't have the ascension. But we know this from the Gospel of Acts, Luke, uh, Luke and Acts, that as he ascends into heaven, he will descend from the heavens. So as he comes into the clouds, he will come from the clouds. But that's why Mark is so interesting, is because he doesn't... It's not like that doesn't really happen... It's just that for us here, in our subjective perspective of our realities, we need to have the crucifixion first as being this coming in the clouds. Not not first and only, though, but just primary. So, yeah, so so the second coming, this, uh, you know, just in case you were wondering, Lutherans don't believe in the rapture. We don't believe in dispensationalism. You can Google those words later. It's been a while. When did those uh, left-behind books come out? That was came in the early 2000s, right? I think, that, I think Pastor Bruzek did a... Oh! All right, well. Um, I think Pastor Bruzek did a Bible study on this. I feel like I sat through a lesson. Okay, anyways. Um, but we, yeah, so Lutherans don't believe in the rapture. <laughs> or, I mean, don't, I'm sorry, we do believe in the rapture. The biblical understanding of rapture, but not the uh, Schofield understanding of, of the rapture. These are all weird words, so don't worry about it. But um, the rapture is the catching up. So that's described in Thessalonians. Or no, maybe we talked about it in... when we yeah. A few years ago, we did a little study on Thessalonians. We talked about the rapture then. When Jesus comes, he will come in, in power and glory for the final judgment. Um I don't want to get on that tangent, though. Um, <laughs> some people believe there's going to be a seven years of tribulation, and then Christ will come down, and other peoples will say, Christ will come down first, and then there will be seven. So there's pre-millennialism, post and then I, I, Lutherans are uh, lumped into, yeah, a-millennialism or a-millennialism. Where, it now? where just, just, yeah, Jesus will come. When he comes, he comes. We're done. Okay, sorry. Um, so, Julie, yes. So, the second, yeah, so it, it does give us hope for now and for the future. That's the simple answer to Julie's statement. Krista. I don't
1: know what you to mention um, when Mark <coughs> wrote this down, that was many, many years uh, later.
0: Yeah, well, that's a debate. Yeah, it could be, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's definitely the early 60s. Yeah, it would be kind of the earliest. Yep. With the
1: togetherness with Peter. Yeah. And, and at that time perhaps he
0: experienced persecution by himself. Absolutely. Yeah, now actually Chris makes a good point too, but by that time not just Peter, but like all the all the the 12 have been experiencing becoming before, you know, coming before tribunals and councils. Um, at this time too there's already martyrs. Uh, the first martyrs of course are Stephen and James, James the just written in the book of Acts. So that that's really important for us because now as Mark writes this gospel, you have all these people now who have suffered for Christ's sake, which is in the gospel of Mark and thirteen, right? You'll be you'll um, be brought before councils and, and suffer trials for my my name's sake. So this is a present reality. It's just the way things have been and are. And Mark is writing this now for all these new converts, again, in the 60s, as as these people have died, right? I mean, the the apostles are all dying now because of martyrdom. And it's important to, to write these things down than to pass on the apostolic teaching. So these sayings of Jesus, you know, remembered by Peter, you know, Peter remembers this to happen, and then Mark writes it down. Yeah, of course, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so it's not like a, you know, a verbatim of what Peter says, because um, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke are so similar in a variety of ways. But um, but the point, though, is, is that at this time, in the 60s and the 70s, um, people need to be able to make sense of all this craziness. Because, uh, again, if you take the theory that the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome, what has just transpired at this time but the burning of Rome and the blaming of Christians by Nero. But already before this, though, um, what's the other emperor? Um, or is it right after Nero? Cal- Caligua? Okay, is he just before? I can't remember. It was a big, massive emperors you know, who are, just don't like Christians and want to kill them all. So, um, yeah, so you have all this, this real struggle happening. Okay. Um, yeah, well, that's good. So, I mean, the results of trying to sign this Jesus, Christians in the church, history will show that, um, of course, when Jesus is silenced, he gets resurrected. And then, of course, births the church. And then, of course, when Christians in the church, there's, oh, I forgot to attribute, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That's from, uh, Tertullian. I forgot to write that down. I didn't write that down. I mean, I didn't come up with that phrase. Tertullian was a um, North African pastor who, you know, had a great phrase to make sense of what's happening to Christians. So that's the thing is that as Christians die, the gospel gets proclaimed. And that's how you know it's true. Marilyn.
1: This is not very important, but I'm just curious. When do they think
0: Stephen was killed? At what time? Oh, um, you know, within, with, yeah, 30s, yeah. yeah. You know, just within years. Yep. Yep. Because Paul was there. Yeah. Yep. Kathy. Prior, yeah. prior to
1: yeah. uh, uh, would it be I, Obviously, this discussion about Mark 13 isn't your average American Christian's interpretation.
0: Right. Of the denomination. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. This is a Pastor Nelson one. Yeah.
1: No, but what I'm saying is, uh, it would be fair to say others don't look at it this way because they're not sacramental. They don't look at the body and blood as...
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a variety of reasons. One is it has to do with, like, their sacramental understanding of life and God's, God's work and God's, um, how he, he uh, relates to his people. Uh, the, uh, the others also have to do with a, um, interpreting. Okay, so hang on. So Mark 13, some people will use the book of Revelation to interpret Mark 13. And that, I, I think, is a, the wrong way of interpreting. So I think I might have talked, maybe I have I haven't done it in a while. I'm a very strict hermeneutical circle. So interpret, Mark was written... Uh, he didn't write a book saying, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm not finishing it because they got the book of Revelation. I'm not going to finish this." Um, he, he he read it to make sense. So the fr- the first the only time we ever go outside, like like for instance, the Gospel of Mark to find meaning, is when um, you really have to. And here you don't have to. It makes sense unto itself. Um, so so some people get into misunderstandings or misinterpretations Um, Schofield is the the Darby Schofield or whatever his name was case in point so they would understand Mark 13 through the book of Revelation which book of Revelation and the gospel of Mark are two different types of literature I mean they're both books of the Bible but um, you know it'd be like using uh, (laughs) let's see here The I'm just trying to think of any sort of well, it, it would be like using an epic poem to interpret a historical record. It's always kind of a little dangerous to do that because you can't, you can't quite do that. The other, the other reason, too, though, is I think goes back to what we had talked about before, or I mentioned earlier, is people jumping to the resurrection apart from the re- crucifixion. And So they want to understand Mark 13 without the crucifixion. And I think that, again, that goes against what Mark is about. Mark's all about, I mean, there's a very short resurrection scene in Mark, and Jesus doesn't even show up in it, you know, you're like, so, okay, yes, Donna. You know, when Jesus says um, in this passage from Mark 13, um, this generation will not pass away until all
1: these things take place. That's right. To
0: his I mean his crucifixion. Yeah, right. And the resu- well and uh, yeah, resurrection.
1: Maybe after that he goes
0: into the second coming. Yeah. So this generation is a kind of a peculiar phrase because this generation, in the Old Testament, would mean—well, it's often used with uh, the wanderings. And and so this generation could encompass multiple generations. You, like usually not more than three though um, or you know th- three stages like grandparents parents grandchildren um, or you could just making reference to the the disciples themselves yeah yep so it's kind of both and again it goes back to what Julie says is that, or julie 's question you have a primary and secondary kind of way of understanding this and they 're both true you got to hold them together you can 't split them apart you just You make distinguish you 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 distinguish them without separating them. That's that's important. Kathy. Sorry.
1: Um, So people looking at this generational pathway, so many people interpret as well. Once Israel was. Made a nation, now that generation, and of course they have to keep putting up, when does that generation...
0: Right. I was
1: pregnant when, in 1948, so now that baby has to, can't pass away before all this thing.
0: Yeah, well that's good, that's actually, you know, Kathy brings up a point that I wasn't going to get to in too much, but just we will say real quick, is there's a lot of people who try to make predictions. But Jesus says though, right there, right? Nobody, I don't know when this is happening, Isn't Only his
1: father. So is it like I should get my bag and get to the.:
0: hospital? <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly right. Is this really happening now? Um, and, and this is really important. I, in fact, uh, when, I, you know, when I was reading the Gospel of Mark, I always think about or when Jesus says, no one knows the date or time, uh, when I was a child, uh, 60 minutes did a uh, like a story on people who believed in this uh, millennialism. And I remember this guy, it really struck me as odd when uh, the reporter, who must have been a Christian or at least was raised in the church, he said, "Um, it sounds like you're really excited for this tribulation, even though you're not going to be here. Or you you say you're not going to be here. He's like, yeah, that's right, I can't wait. I thought, that's weird. Why would anybody say that? can't wait for the tribulation? Now, um, because I'm thinking... First of all, this guy has no idea when this is going to happen. Again, just kind of taking Jesus at his word, and then to like imagine this being a good thing for people who are left behind—like death and destruction. Like, you don't want to wish that on people. Yeah, you want to pray for forgiveness and mercy. I think that's how Jesus does it. So, um, yeah. So anybody who like makes these predictions, of course, there's really famous people who do it and then fail. You you can Google that, and then just try to see how they backpedal from this. Yeah, it just it's a, well, you know what they're called actually. They're a false prophet, um, and you you know what happens to false prophets. According to the Bible, false prophets are to be stoned to death. But then you have a whole, you have a whole new interpretation happening, so. Again, it just goes to so that they don't know anything about anything. Krista? Billy and, um, some years ago. Oh, I don't know. Did he? I don't know. Billy Graham might have. Yeah. But uh, I mean, the most famous one is the. Um, oh, see, I'm glad I don't remember his name. Okay, Harold Campy. Yeah, Harold Campy. Um, and then what's the other guy um, with Drizella? The blue haired lady. Okay, never mind. Yeah. There have been a lot of them, but I know the Jehovah's
1: Witnesses. I mean, this really gets me because my sister became the Jehovah's Witness, so I got... Anyway, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they decided, we around World War One that that was some defining thing. Right. The end of the world would have to come before all the people who were soldiers during World War One died out. Oh, okay. They started to all die out. Then, of course, they changed their role. The <laughs> and any number of times, they predicted in their magazine that the end of the world was almost surely come, I think hmm. 1973 or something.
0: Like okay. But when
1: it didn't, not only did they say, oh, well, we were just saying perhaps, but they also <laughs> in their archives went back and they reprinted these magazines so that instead of it being definitive, it would sound like it was just...
0: Oh, perfect. wow.
1: But I mean, because there people had the old magazine.
0: Oh yeah, they said, hey, this is what it said.
1: I mean, so then it's crazy. They to cover the tracks, and they still have a lot of followers, so it's very depressing.
0: Yes. Well, okay, well, we didn't even get into all that stuff. About, you know, when Jesus says, these guys are coming, these guys are coming, do not listen to them. Yeah. He
1: just says, watch. did you, did you know?
0: Yeah, we didn't even get into whole the awake business today. Uh, but if you want to watch a movie, it's by Andrei Tarkovsky. It's called The Stalker. It's a great movie about staying awake. You Should watch it. Vicar, have you seen that movie? Oh, and the, okay, Stalker though is not—it's not that—that not that you would understand that word as uh, anachronistic. Uh, don't put your meaning on that word. It's—it's a—they it's a, should change the title of that. But um, he is a man about who goes into the zone. I feel like I've maybe talked about this. So there is this zone where you can go to and all your questions will be answered. And the only one who can... It's a very dangerous place, though, because if you, if you go off the path, you, you'll be obliterated, basically. And the only people who can take, people, like, can take others into the zone are called stalkers. Yeah. Um, anyways, there's a great, beautiful scene. I thought about showing it to you, but I decided not to. Because uh, I just want to talk about the cross, um, is where it's in the middle of the movie, and you have the, you have the stalker, professor, and uh, something else. I can't remember. They have no names; they're just positions. And and they're walking along, and all of a sudden they just they start laying down. You're like, this is weird. What's going on here? And they fall asleep. And it gets into this dream scene. Beautiful. It's very well done. And um, a dog comes along. Faith comes along, Fido. And he can just run free. He runs free. And he comes, and he sits next to the man, kind of the, the stalker. And he, uh, and he wakes up. Now, the other two who have laid down, they wake up, too. They... They look like they're awake. But the man turns and says, are you awake? And then he starts to recite from Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, when they can see Jesus, but they do not recognize him. They are awake, but not awake. It's great. It's, very, it's just so great. It's such a great scene. Um, because then he looks, yeah, he looks at you and wonders... Are you awake too on multiple levels meaning like are you paying attention to this movie because it's really good and you should stay awake (laughs) but also then to the meaning behind it so all right we went way over let's pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses